Chapter 5 Finding Center Days passed into nights and nights to days, and I found myself late for a party that was going on at the rifle range. It was one of the many places, like the sand pits, Grunenberg Park, or the Bundesbank, where my compadres would meet up and put the party on. This particular time it was warmer than usual, yet still cool, so I decided, in a fashion ballistic moment, to wear overalls and a sweater. My hair was growing out, but still not shoulder length, so I had it in a band pulled back with some small earrings to adorn the look. I went to the usual place where I met up with people, G's Trincala at Miquel Adikesali, but found none of my usual familiars there. Instead, I encountered a new acquaintance and the people that he was associated with, military guys. One of them was a major, and the other two were his younger subordinates. They were looking to party. I needed to catch a ride to the rifle range party because everyone was going to be there, and I began talking about how great it was going to be, not realizing that the major was breaking military protocol by fraternizing with enlisted soldiers. My friends were my lifeline, and I needed to be there. I didn't want to know what kind of deal was going on between the guy that I casually knew and the military guys, so I moved away from the rear seating area to go up and speak to Gino at the window in the front. Gino was a lovely man from Greece who lived in the back of the Trincala with his wife. I never knew much about him, only that he was exceedingly sweet and would sometimes do me little favors like giving me more sauce when I ordered a special favorite of mine. I didn't ever have a reason to question his motives. Gino, as always, greeted me with a smile and kindness because he was, at the heart of things, a kind soul that had perhaps been through too much in life. After I got my snack from Gino, the major suggested that he could take all of us to the RR party in his car with no problem at all. In fact... He said that he was happy to do it. So the journey began with me riding shotgun and the guy that I knew casually sitting between the other two in the back seat. It was a Mercedes and it was a smooth ride, not that I cared much or was impressed by it in the way that the major expected me to be. He engaged me in conversation as he claimed to know the way to the rifle range. I mean, he was a major after all, so he should have a clue as to where to go. Alas, no. After several failed attempts and wrong turns that took up several hours, it was getting too late for him. He said that he needed to go pick up his 18-month-old son and drop off the other guys at the barracks. At that point, there were many offers for me to have a place to crash at the barracks. I kept my thoughts to myself as I politely declined the very robust offers coming from the back seat, knowing that there was no way in hell that I was going to sleep in the barracks. I also knew that the U-2 had stopped running, and so finding a place to crash was a priority. As the younger guys in the back tried to convince me to crash with them, the major looked at me sideways and gave me a slight no-nod, his ashen-white skin reflecting the colors of the nightscape as he drove. I could tell by his expression that he wanted to convey that I should not do that because it would be an unbelievably bad idea. This was nothing that I didn't already know, after finding places to crash on occasion in the past without issue. 
He then offered to let me stay with him in a housing area that I knew well, and I contemplated how that felt to me. Meanwhile, we picked up his son and continued our long, frustrating trek to drop off the others, after at least two hours of driving around to no avail. I held his son, who fell fast asleep on my chest, while we drove to the barracks. I learned that the major was divorced. I realized that the best offer on the table was to crash at the major's housing quarters in his spare bedroom, as he had said it would be no problem at all. It would be safe there, he said. I saw his gentleness with his son, Graham. I held his son carefully as we drove on and finally dropped off the others at their destination. We then headed to the Plotten housing area. I felt more comfortable being in familiar territory with someone who seemed to be a family man. He engaged in polite and more mature conversation with me during the long and failed attempt to get to the range. He explained that when we arrived, he would put his son down for the night and then show me to my accommodations. I debated the idea of hanging around Frankfurt at 2 a.m. in the now cold chill of the post-midnight hours, waiting for the U-2 to begin running in the morning. That option paled beside the idea of having a nice warm bed in which to sleep in the quarters of someone that had been nothing but a gentleman to me all night. When we got there, he took his sleeping son from my arms and we climbed the flight of stairs up to his quarters. He unlocked the door and did just as he said that he would, putting his son down in a crib for the night. I glanced around at the Spartan quarters furnished with the usual military decor as I waited for his return. I stood by the front door and looked him directly in the eyes, knowing that I had to be unquestionably clear with him about what was going to happen and my own personal boundaries. I thanked him for offering to let me stay with him and told him very directly that I was in no way interested in anything romantic or remotely sexual with him. I explained even further that I understood if he would rather not have me stay, knowing that I had no interest in those activities with him, and I offered to leave. I knew that I would figure something out if necessary. He reassured me that no, he was not interested in that, and said, Here, let me show you to the room where you can stay. He then opened the door to the room next to his son's and turned on a small lamp with a dim orange-yellow light beside the bed. I walked in to view it for only a moment and commented that it was nice. That was when he began to attack me violently and pushed me down onto the bed. Time slowed down to a standstill and I remembered every single show that I had ever watched about preventing sexual assault. Meanwhile, his hands were everywhere on my body, trying to rip off my overalls. These hands were hard and rough and cruel. They were mean and angry. They were violent. He whispered in my ear, I just want some good lovin', as he continued to violently assault me. I just want some good lovin', he whispered, while I bathed in absolute disgust for him. The disparity of his words and actions were unbelievable and repulsive, but I didn't have time to think about that at all. Instead, I developed several plans in my mind, Plan A, Plan B, and Plan C. The one thing that I knew for sure was that this was not in God's plan for me, 
and I was not about to allow this pathetic individual to have what he wanted, period. He had sweet talk to me all night, a liar to my face, pretending not to be a predator. I lay very still as all of this was happening, not moving, not reacting, and not responding at all. Then, as if channeling a voice from the heavens, I reached down inside of myself, to the core of my being, for everything that I was or ever would be, and said from that place, Get off of me right now. He paused for two clicks, and I repeated myself with even more fury than before, speaking loudly with all the revulsion that I felt. You get off of me right now! He then began the game playing again. Or what? I'll call your parents and tell them where you've been all night. I said, I'll call my parents right now and tell them to come pick me up, you piece of shit! Get off of me now! Suddenly, his entire body stopped the assault, went limp with shame, and jumped right up from me and the bed, burying his hands in his pockets. He looked at the floor, fidgeting in his pockets like a child, and said that he was sorry. I didn't mean anything by it, he spewed quietly, knowing he was caught in his shame. I felt the change in the energy and the tension of the room as I lied to him. It's all right. You know, I'm feeling really thirsty. I... I need a drink of water. Sure, sure, he said, almost running to the kitchen to accommodate me. I slowly and deliberately followed him, firmly rooted in my power, saying lightly, I think I left my cigarettes in here. I was standing by the front door, on the outside of the counter that looked into the kitchen, and he was behind it. The absurdity of him getting me a glass of water in what appeared to be a normal kitchen in an average household did not escape me. All I felt was righteous anger after what had just happened. I grabbed my purse and bolted right out the front door, quickly and decisively, leaving him in the dust. I was moving so fast that I couldn't believe it. I cut through some housing and back to the main road in the icy chill of the morning, looking up to the great beyond and asking, Well, now what? I was really pissed off, shivering and in shock, because although he hadn't penetrated any part of my defenses with his ineptitude, I felt that my life had been in danger. It was in no way sexual or romantic at all. It was an act of pure violence against another human being on his part. And it would haunt him, I knew, forever, though I did not care if it did. I kept my lips so tightly closed that his spit was dried all over my face. He couldn't even get his tongue into my mouth because I felt severely repulsed by him. He had forcefully pressed his lips and tongue onto my face to no avail while his hands grabbed and groped, pulling and bruising my body. So there I was, walking next to the main road, heading in the direction of High Cog into familiar territory, when a fucking Mercedes slowly crept up next to me with him in the driver's seat. I kept my distance as he opened the door on the driver's side and began to beg me to get into the car. Apologizing profusely and desperately for what he had done, he then offered to drive me home. I said, I'm not getting into that car with you, you fucking asshole. 
I unceremoniously told him with no reservations as loudly as I could to fuck right off and was fully ready to compassionately kick his ass at this point. He seemed a miserable, pitiful creature, begging me to get into the car. He had lost any privilege of knowing me or being treated with anything other than contempt at this point. My ferocity kept him at bay, kneeling in the putridity of his own realization of what a horror he had allowed himself to become. He knew it because my compassion was that I didn't hide it from him, allowing him to see, with blazing clarity, the light of truth in my eyes. This revealed him for exactly what he was at that moment, a coward. His behavior was monstrous. The fact that he was a grown man trying to take advantage of a 16-year-old girl by playing on her imagined insecurities infuriated me even more. This 16-year-old girl on this night had actually looked the part, not that it mattered, wearing a blouse and overalls with her hair pulled back by a band. The only thing that she had wanted to do was to go to a party. He had obviously been planning his detestable and abhorrent behavior all night long, pretending not to know where the rifle range was, pretending to be lost, and pretending to be a safe alternative to the barracks. I found the fact that his behavior had been premeditated even more enraging. I had already lost all respect for him as he continued desperately pleading with me to get into the car and then began throwing several hundred Deutschmark bills in my direction. Here, take some money for a taxi, he said, sniveling. It was this moment when my disgust with him and his behavior could get no lower or deeper and was reflected clearly in my voice tone and words when I said, I don't want your fucking money, you asshole. I can't believe you left your son alone at home. Go home to your son. The money was a completely meaningless gesture to me. I watched as the Deutschmarks began to scatter and fall into the seat well and onto the ground next to the car. I also clearly recognized the unspoken implication of trying to make me into a whore so that he could feel better about himself. Maybe he could have justified what he had done if I had taken his money for a taxi ride home. But I stood firmly on my own moral high ground and would not even touch it. I felt revolted by the gesture and knew that I would rather find a stairwell to take shelter for the night than to take anything that would give him the remotest possibility of comfort. I stood there cold and ready to walk on when I remembered that I had left my sweater in his car. I spoke to him as though he were a child, with the kind of compassion that few would understand given my ordeal. Give me my fucking sweater, I demanded. I left my sweater in your car. Give it to me. It's under the seat. He began whimpering again, which only made me repeat myself. He complied. I grabbed it from him, backed away from the car, and threw it around my shoulders. Now leave me the fuck alone, I ordered. And he did, utterly defeated. He pathetically gathered up the Deutschmarks, scooping them back into the car, closed the door, and drove away. Finally, I was alone again with my angels, God, and the universe, wearing my sweater to ward off some of the Frankfurt chill, 
I estimated that it must have been 2.30 a.m. at this point as I walked and prayed. Where could I go at this hour and not draw attention to myself, yet have a safe place to sleep? Not recognizing my very fragile state, I continued to walk on toward High Cog, and then it came to me in a flash, as though it fell right out of the sky. Gavin's brother, Dan, was a friend of Destin's, and I should go there. The only real obstacle would be to get in through the locked front door of the building. Well, it was worth a try. It was the best plan that I could think of that rivaled the other choice of taking a taxi home, waking my parents for money to pay it, and then explaining to them what had just happened to me. I didn't have the energy for the interrogation that would follow, and I knew that it would raise hell at home. So, I set off to see Gavin's brother Dan with purpose inspired.